episode six of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. I'm currently a regular writer on women and the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with, working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing research projects at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. So some of you listening may know that we sell some pretty awesome Lady Science merch on our website. We have t-shirts, burning bra, lapel pins, and tote bags. Um, and so this month of February, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I actually don't know what it's called anymore, but those things, um, you will be entered to win a tote bag with the logo of your choice, either the burning bra logo or our oil lamp logo. So we'll randomly choose one of the reviewers and announce them on the March episode. So do us a solid, help us out with those reviews, and we'll give you cool stuff in return. So this month on the Lady Science blog, we've been running a special series on Star Trek with a particular focus on the TV series representation of Winder, Winder, women and gender, <laughs> of women, gender, and sexuality. For this episode today, we're going to talk about some of those issues that come up in the series, and then a little later, historian Deanna Day will join us in the conversation. So Rebecca is going to kick us off talking about a segment we're calling Gaze in Space. Yes, Gaze <laughs> in Space. Um, so early in the, um, so one of the reasons that we're doing this uh, series is in part because we all love Star Trek and we want an excuse to write about it, uh, but also because of uh, this month, Star Trek Discovery uh, wrapped up its first season. Um, and early on in the promotion for Star Trek Discovery, uh, the powers that be revealed that the show would have at least one main character who was openly gay. Uh, and, you know, this was back when we were full of hope about the new Star Trek series coming out. Uh, and that got me even more excited. Because I'm also a musical theater nerd, I was extra excited when it turned out the character in question was going to be played by Anthony Rapp. Um, who is most known for starring in a little musical people has probably heard of called Rent. He's fabulous. He's pretty fabulous on the show. Um, and this was exciting because now we finally have gays in space. Yay! And it, while Discovery hasn't been everything that I think I hoped or that many of us hoped it would be, uh, I really have really enjoyed Anthony Rapp's performance. And I think his character is one of the more interesting characters on the show. Uh, and he's been given some interesting plot arcs to work with, so that's nice. Um, but anyway, uh, what I'm really kind of here to chat about with you guys is uh, that casting um, got me thinking about how queerness and LGBT issues had been represented in the Star Trek universe uh, generally. Paul Stamets is the name of Anthony Rapp's character. Uh, also a character on the show uh, is Dr. Culber. I couldn't figure out if they ever had given him a first name. Um, but Dr. Culber is his husband, partner, person, um, played by Wilson Cruz. And the two of them are the first explicitly out gay characters in a Star Trek series. Um, but I would argue that gender and sexuality and queerness have been themes throughout Star Trek, or at least in other instances instances in the Star Trek uh, universe. And um, so, yeah, I was wondering what you guys thought of that. Uh, well, there, I mean, this one's kind of low-hanging fruit, but it, there's the obvious one in the last movie, Beyond, when they show um, Sulu embracing his husband and their child. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I was when I was thinking about this, I was like, I'm gonna, someone's gonna get mad at me if I don't mention that that Sulu was claimed as gay before before this discovery started. But whatever, like it was great, but it wasn't necessarily a significant part of anything that happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like. It's it's such a tiny moment, and they're literally like walking away from the camera. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's never spoken of again, and it doesn't like. It doesn't have any material bearing on what anybody does in the movie, but it's like they still got, you know, the filmmakers still got like huge plaudits for doing like the literal bare minimum. <laughs> we showed yeah. so, we showed two men hugging, so now you have to give us an award for like <laughs> um, how inclusive we are. And I mean, it's funny that people like us think that that's really it's it's not enough and like no you don't get a cookie just for like showing two men hugging on screen and that was still enough to make like the awful fanboys lose their minds about it seriously you know like oh you're ruining the, ruining the show it's no longer that masculine frontier type of thing that we loved about it and um which I guess this actually gets back to your original question, Rebecca, of, well, that's not the first time that Star Trek has explored these issues in way more detail than they do in that one moment. And how are you mad about that? And you haven't been mad about the rest of the series. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the other thing I feel like that I got thrown out um, was, why are you putting politics in Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> Right. It's literally a communist utopia that was created by a rather liberal and and somewhat political yeah. dude. Who... Like their entire episodes are just about like diplomacy. Like yeah. what do you, what I do mean, you the mean? show Yeah, the show is basically politics in space. Like that's yeah. what it's about, really. Yeah. Um and then some occasional hijinks with like oil slick monsters and weird things like that, but <laughs> The basic premise, like, even just the idea of, like, exploring and making contact with other civilizations, like, that's politics. Like, (laughs) there's politics involved there. I don't know. (laughs) In a show like this, especially, I think, with what they started doing with Next Gen, that it would have been a, a ship dedicated to exploration and seeking out new civilizations and new species and things like that if they didn't confront issues of gender and sexuality and the way that they are culturally constructed across the galaxy, then that would have been a huge oversight in a show based on first contact and, you know, exploration. Well, yeah. And so when they, when they really fall down on that, like it's even more, it really sticks out when they sort of lose the thread and do something like really stereotype heavy or yeah, ignore the sort of gender politics of what they're talking about, because I would say usually Trek does a pretty good job of that until, you know, like I said. Until they don't. When when they don't. Like, they <laughs> until really they don't. don't. Yeah, like when they have uh, What's-Her-Face just like changing in front of Kirk in that shuttle. It's <laughs> 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 like, I'm sorry. Uh, what's going on? Why did she take her shirt off? What's happening? <laughs> First of all, why'd she have to change clothes anyway? Like that was was that into darkness? That was the con con yeah. Re- yeah, right? yeah, that was the one. Yeah, it's uh, Marcus, with a, yeah. a a charming British man playing a man named Con, um, <laughs> which was one of the issues with that movie. Um, but there, Felicia Day had, I think it was Felicia Day when that movie came out. She had a good critique, not just about that woman changing in front of. Kirk and we get a full up and down male gaze shot of that. Um, But she also made a really good point about how there were no women involved in the decision making that was going Mm -hmm. on in that film. Mm -hmm. And so like, yeah, there was the male gaze stuff, but like more importantly, I think like in a real straying from Star Trek, the series that women were not involved in any of those major decisions um, at all (laughs) in that film. But anyway, we need to get back to gays in space. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one thing that I uh, I read um, when I was doing some research for this was that I guess for a long time, or at least for a decent amount of time, for like some of the run of Next Gen, 
uh, Gene Roddenberry really wanted a gay character. Uh, and the network was like, no, this is a family show. We can't have gay characters. And he was like, but, but the future and equality and exploring the universe. And they, I read a thing that, yeah, they, um, got really close to having a recurring, um, a recurring character who was gay, and then Gene Roddenberry died, and there basically wasn't someone to advocate for that plot anymore, and uh, and they cut it. And then Kate Mulgrew also really wanted a gay character on Voyager, but again, like the network was like, no, you're supposed to be a family-friendly show. This idea of like it's a family-friendly show, so we can't <laughs> we can't have any gays on it. There's all kinds of like fairly family unfriendly things on star trek like i don't think that that's a really good <laughs> yeah. defense i think no. like i cannot watch any of the episodes where data dates or has sex with anyone just it's it's a brett spiner thing it's not a humans and androids <laughs> thing <laughs> but like that's brett, spiner. i don't know he's just so oh, he's so weird i love you brett spiner if you're listening to this which is a thing that happens occasionally on this podcast. <laughs> As we have recently discovered. But, um, I don't know. So, like, but, but there's all kinds of, like, uh, horrible deaths. And I just, like, that's a bad excuse. It doesn't make any sense. Especially not if you have, like, straight characters who are having sex and getting married and having relationships and doing whatever. Like, <laughs> One of the first episodes that got me thinking about gender and sexuality and in in the series was in an episode of next gen and it was i guess it was season four uh called the host with crusher and the trill and right, yeah so in that episode um a trill ambassador comes onto the ship and in a male body and um crusher and him fall in love and he dies. His symbiont doesn't die inside of his male body, but um, the male body that she, the outside of him that she fell in love with is no longer there. So the trail gets transferred into Riker, which uh, makes for some really weird moments of her trying to figure out if she's going to continue being with the, the symbiont who is inside of Riker now, but also like it's Riker. Uh, she can't, can't really get past that. And then at the end, um, they sent the Trill uh, planet sends another Trill to take the symbiont in, and it's the body of a woman. And um, Crusher, as a straight woman, can does not feel like she can continue that romantic relationship. And it got me thinking about gender and sexuality in... The first time that I saw this, I was rather young. So like as a rather young child, like kind of trying to understand some of these bigger issues that they were dealing with, because with like a symbiote who is a genderless, sexless, right, thing yeah. <laughs> gets put into Slug. a gendered and a sexed body. And that determines how other people interact with that species. I think it's the first one where, like, they introduce the trills as as a concept, uh, which then, like, they keep. I think that they're never consistent about exactly like how trills work, <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, I think that they introduced it then and didn't come back to it in Next Gen, and then they made Jadzia Dax Trill the main character in one of the main characters in DS9, and then then they explored that culture more in depth, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it is and it is really, it is really fascinating. Yeah, I think it gives them a chance to, at least around the edges, play with um, having kind of a, like there's, there's, I think, a few different times when in Star Trek, they will run across some culture that, you know, doesn't have gender or like is, different in some way, you know, to make a, to do like a big metaphor about something. But yeah, but it does seem like they sort of inadvertently almost 
have then what becomes one of the main species that has, in some ways, a fundamentally different idea about gender and sexuality because of the whole, like, trill host symbiont thing where, uh, essentially, the person, the, you know, the sexed-bodied person does have, like, a personality and, and a life, uh, but once they get the symbiont, they, um, they have all those memories associated with the symbiont, and that means that they have, like, experience of being other genders or being um, attracted to various kinds of people. And uh, while they are rarely explicit about it, maybe never explicit about it, uh, it definitely plays a role in the way that Gen Zia interacts on Deep Space Nine. And this is uh, what my essay was about uh, for Star Trek Week. And it's neat, yeah, there, there's definitely an exploration of what, like a subtextual exploration of what gender means to her, um, both in terms of the fact that she just flirts with everyone, uh, but also um, in the way that she sort of, her interactions with people are sometimes gendered based on like when she knew them previously. Uh, like her, I feel like her relationship with uh, the Captain Sisko, who knew um, knew Dax in the previous form, and he was and Curzon Dax was Sisko's mentor, and their relationship, while not quite the same as that, is informed by the fact that they had a different kind of relationship previously, uh, and so things like that come up, and I didn't quite realize like what made it so special when I was a kid, but I think it was neat to have that. One of the things that you say in the piece is you talk about it as queer time and how mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. different than some of the other characters that are maybe just gay. Yeah. yeah. What, what, I, I'm just curious if you could explain a little bit about what, what queer time in the series means for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is something that I just like... Uh, queer theory concept that I very recently came across thanks to a great article in, um, in JSTOR Daily. Uh, and the idea of queer time is essentially that because for most of the 20th century and most of history, um, the kind of markers of adulthood, uh, so marriage, kids, career, buying a home, retirement, uh, were not necessarily um, available to out queer people. And so adulthood becomes constructed differently. Uh, the, it's also related to the idea that um, because social spaces are different for queer people, there isn't the same kind of like you do certain things when you're young and not when you're um and not when you're like middle-aged, like the, the article talks about how club, um, dance club culture is important in a lot of queer communities in different cities, and that, you know, middle-aged people go to the clubs too, uh, because that's where like queer culture happens. And so that's not just like a thing for kids. I saw that, um, and I read that, and I was thinking about doing an article, this essay about Dax, and I realized that, so, you know, so the symbiont is 400 years old and has been, like, married multiple times in, in, different, in different bodies and has had kids at different times in different bodies and has had wildly different careers. So those, those like, markers as sort of markers of adulthood are meaningless, I would kind of, to the symbiont because... It's just like seeking new and interesting things to do is kind of the symbiont's goal. Uh, and it doesn't, and it's going to include some of those things, but they exist on a much wider, like a lot, much longer, like life. And then the other side of that is for Jadzia, where you see her kind of become a new person in her 20s, essentially, uh, when she's joined with the symbiont. And I think that can in some ways some of the ways in which that's presented mimic the coming out process for some people. 
uh, where they, uh, where you come out and you kind of go, okay, well now I have to redefine like all of these things. Uh, or I have to like redefine for the people around me all of these things. And even, even if like it's a positive redefinition, it's still a, uh, a complex process. Finding your identity in adulthood is a great grand theme in literature for a reason. Uh, so it's, it's not necessarily unique, but, but yeah, there's, there, there was just, there's something in there that like connected for me. Just in case people aren't familiar with DS9 or the trills, the, the, uh, so Jadzia Dax, Jadzia is the name of the, uh, the, the body. And then Dax is the name of the symbiont. So, um, that's why the her previous the symbiote's previous name was Curzon Dax. So Curzon was the name of the body person, and then Dax is always tagged on to the end. So, but I think that the 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 trills make just like kind of an ideal way to explore gender and sexuality, especially as you know we so often talk about now those things lying on a spectrum, and. Um, that she, her character in DS9 is able to kind of embody that spectrum. Yeah. Um, but also one of the things that you bring up in the piece is how she still is written to be acceptable to men. Oh, yeah. 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 So can you talk a little bit about the ways that sh- that happens in the show? My God, I mean, part of it is that I, I have read that Terry Farrell, the actress who played Dax, like, had to deal with some, like, terrible men being terrible on set all the time because previously she had been a model and, like, they basically saw her as the pretty face uh, and, like, the sexy legs, which sucks and I think often leaks into the show in really annoying ways, uh, really frustrating ways. Uh, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, she, uh, all of her relationships are with, um, with men, except for the one exception where, uh, there's an episode rejoined where she ends up, um, running into someone who was, uh, her wife in a previous host when the host was male. And so now both of them are women, uh, which lets the show feel like it's being very progressive and having two women kiss, but it's really a representation of a straight relationship. Um, and, and they do again with like the grand metaphor thing. It's like, they can't be together, but it's not because they're both women, but it's because there is a stigma in Trill society about like rehashing romantic relationships from past lives. Uh, or from past hosts. What are some other, I don't know, what are, besides, besides Jadzia and besides the trills, what are some other issues of gender and sexuality and stuff that you guys, that stand out for y'all? I mean, there's that, that ghost one with Dr. Crusher, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> what ghost one with Dr. Crusher? <sighs> what is the... Entity. I know there's a goat. Yeah, like I know it's like there a is ghost, a thing, but with... it's not. It's an alien, but it's it behaves the way you would imagine a ghost. And then they go to this planet that looks like Scotland. <laughs> you know how there's a planet that looks like Scotland. Uh, there's a planet that looks like Ireland. <laughs> um, and then she, it's like a, it's like a, one of those like like yeah, Highland among the Moors like romance situation but it's like a ghost alien i mean i don't not that like i mean a ghost alien is like it could be like a queer paranormal thing but it's a dude ghost so you know (laughs) yeah i I remember that one i don't really know what to say about that one except it's a really bad episode and you shouldn't watch it yeah (laughs) it's weird as shit well because like she basically gets walked in on while she's masturbating like it's in speaking of family friendly <laughs> seriously <laughs> yeah. it's that candle thing right yes the candle thing you have these mechanisms that star trek is able to do because of its sort of it's it's setting in all the all the possibilities that that provides you with so that you can invent um you know and a species that 
lives in these bodies and has all these experiences that can be very queer. But as we've been saying this whole conversation, then like there are other times where they like, they just ignore the like infinite possibilities of writing in the Star Trek universe and do horrible things. Like there's that episode in TNG when, when Troy basically gets impregnated, she gets impregnated by that alien. (gasps) Yeah, it's sleep. the first first uh, episode of season two. I'm trying to remember like how that episode actually goes and if there's any kind of like good plot there. But the that whole like alien impregnation thing is like very upsetting because it does happen without her knowing. So you know, uh, I don't remember exactly what happens. Is that the one where the baby grows really fast or is that a different alien impregnation yeah it's that one because it like it it, like rapidly goes through the whole like growing up process to experience it um and then dies (laughs) within like 48 hours or something um and the whole thing is it basically uses troy not only like her body so that can go through a birthing process for its own amusement and edification, but also makes her like raise this child as her own and then grieve its loss for its own like edification. Like that's messed up. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, there's no like, there's no real analysis of that, of the dynamics of that. It's just like, Oh, aliens. (laughs) Whoa, that was weird. Yeah, that one was really weird. Um, and there is another really bad one with Troy, too, when that one guy, hes I think he's also a Beta Z, or at least part Beta Z, or Beta Zoid, sorry, and he comes on board and he doesn't reveal to the people around him that he can influence their emotions as an empath, and he uses it in negotiations and stuff. But he basically, like, emotionally abuses her and she like ends up in this abusive relationship with this guy and like they don't even really deal with how upsetting that could be to a woman like (laughs) i feel like she gets some really bad uh treatment in some of these episodes and they don't really like unpack kind of the gendered issues going on in there Oh, absolutely. And you can tell that they have no interest in thinking about that by the way they uh, costume her. And, like, up until she gets a uniform, basically, which is in, like, season six. And the way that they have her yeah. get into a uniform because the captain who took over for Picard told her to and that he mm-hmm. wasn't going to have her in anything else on his bridge or something. And it's like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, her outfits get a little better as things go on, but, those, like, the first two seasons, they, I, it's, like, embarrassing what they have put her in. And it must have been embarrassing for her. Yeah. They're just, like, like, monochromatic, like, slinky dress with matching tights and the same color <laughs> shoes. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then her communicator just, like, Barely hanging on to the edge of her neckline. It's just like, okay. <laughs> Boy. Oh, God. And there was in that same episode with the, the guy who was basically abusing her, that's the one where they have her and Crusher doing like Jane Fonda exercises <laughs> for the camera. <laughs> oh, and yeah. leotards. <laughs> in, in case you were worried that these two professional women. Uh, aren't as babely as you were hoping. Here we have them in pattern spandex doing stretches. <laughs> <laughs> TNG is still my favorite, but it it like you have to skip the first season and most of the second season. And then there are a few episodes that I always skip because they're like I said, no data dating anyone. I can't do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I skip the ones with Jordy and Leah Brahms. Because I I can't deal with watching a male engineer, like, fall in love with his creation on the holodeck. And just, I can't. Now my brain is, like, getting into gear and I'm thinking of all kinds of different um, 
interesting examples <laughs> of in like more interesting explorations of like gender and sexuality. Like obviously and this goes back to like the original series, there's the whole idea of Ponfar and I was I was gonna say, yeah. yeah. It's hard to call it a family friendly show when like one of the most iconic like episodes of the entire any of the series is basically Spock needs to go home because he has to have a sex ritual. Yeah. <laughs> and like that he becomes like sexually violent and stuff during that <laughs> time so period weird. is really alarming. <laughs> yeah. Ponfar is terrifying. Like the way it, that it's portrayed in Voyager is like oh, yes. really upsetting. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. I would like to note that there's just a funny thing. I think it's Think Geek sells um, Ponfar cologne for men. <laughs> <laughs> well, they have the corner on that market. For, yeah. Oh. I do kind of love just speaking of uh, the, yeah, the Voyager Ponfar story, which, which wraps up with, you know, um, solving the problem via holodeck as one does in Star Trek. But, like, I do in this hilarious way appreciate that, but, like, in, like, Next Gen, they invent the holodeck, and, like, people use it for very, like, practical and, like, G and PG reasons. And then in Deep Space Nine and Voyager, they were like, no, guys, if you could have a holodeck, it would just be 95% porn, 5% like trashy novels. And then right. that's basically what it is. Well, and in DS9, um, what's his name? Running the bar. Oh, Cork. Yeah. Cork. He's he's the one that Cork. is in charge of the holodeck and right. he like writes the programs for them. So you know yeah. and he's always like pushing it on the men that come into his bar. <laughs> so. Oh yeah, it's real clear that this is porn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I kind of, like, in a hilarious way appreciate that it's like, you know what, no, people are people, even in space. I think that that's actually, that's, like, a really important development in the later series, I think. So I, I wrote about, um, for Star Trek Week, I wrote about Constance Penley's book, um, NASA slash Trek, which is a very strange book that I love. It's very odd, but the... Um, the second half of the book is about, um, she does this sort of like early ethnography of Star Trek fandom, um, um, particularly like erotic slash fandom. And one of her, I think one of her most important conclusions is that like, um, is first of all to give credence to what fans are doing and to um, take seriously um, this sort of what she, I think, concludes is like a utopian project of writing slash fiction, and her she I sort of read this book. Oh, you <laughs> love it! It's great. She she sort of concludes that um, that there's there's something really important and uh, restorative, I guess, about writing these kinds of. She's talking about specifically like Kirk Spock fan fiction. Um, about writing this kind of erotic fan fiction and expanding the um, Star Trek universe, fans doing that for themselves because they're reintroducing or uh, reinterpreting or rewriting the idea of desire into the Star Trek universe, and that like you can't you can't have a totally free, liberated, you know, communist space utopia if you're not free to. Um, pursue and express and understand uh, your desire and that um that that's like a sort of deeply human way of being or way of interacting with the world that's missing from a lot of our sort of myths or stories or understandings of science and technology and like that's the like that's why star trek is the site for like making these kind of utopias and that the way to do them is writing Kirk Spock fan fiction. The book is amazing. <laughs> but I think this idea of these like later series just being like, yep, there's porn in the holodeck. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Like is a step in the right direction to recognizing like mm -hmm. a more sort of fully rounded humanity 
out there gallivanting across the stars that probably, you know, just needs to get laid sometimes. (laughs) That actually feels like a perfect place to stop and (laughs) bring in our guest. Um, Talking with us today is Deanna Day. Deanna is a historian of science and a current research fellow at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia, though you're in Los Angeles, right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. (laughs) She is writing a book about the thermometer's history in American medicine, showing how it laid the intellectual and material foundations for our current approach to self-tracking technologies. Deanna is also a contributor to the Lady Science magazine. She wrote for us last spring and contributed a piece to the Star Trek series that we've been talking about titled The Sum of Our Programming, Finding Humanity in Emotional Labor. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I've been a big fan for a long time, so it's like a dream come true. (laughs) That's us making dreams come true. (laughs) So nice. Um, well, we've been talking about having you on the podcast for a while now, so we're happy to have you and happy to be able to talk about this fantastic piece that you wrote on data and emotional labor. Um, so could you give us a little bit of a rundown of what your piece was about Sure. So I am relatively new to Star Trek. Um, I've pretty much only seen The Next Generation all the way through. Um, I saw the Man Trap episode of the original series and noped out of there so fast (laughs) that I think the TV spun around on its little axis. Um, And so when I was watching The Next Generation for the first time, uh, obviously Data was like, my most favorite character um, because he made explicit all of the really hard work that it takes to learn how to be a person. And I was talking to, I don't even remember now, I was talking to someone about Star Trek, maybe Rebecca, it was even you. And someone said something um, that Data is showing how hard it is to learn how to be a man. And I said, actually, Data is showing how hard it is to learn how to be a woman, because there was something so familiar (laughs) in the ways that he was working really hard to learn how to relate to other people and to understand what people were doing and to take care of them and to learn how to be himself in this particular way that I think women are way more often trained and expected um, to learn how to be than often men are. So that was sort of the inspiration behind the piece was that moment of thinking like, well, what kind of person really is data learning how to be? And so for the piece, what I wanted to do was just talk a little bit about this particular concept um, called emotional labor and what that means in this context. Um, And then go through a couple of examples from several series, several seasons of The Next Generation to talk about particular ways that data enacts this concept. Can you define for everybody what emotional labor is? Yeah, so emotional labor is this sociological concept that essentially when you really boil it down means work that a person does to manage and take care of the emotions of other people. So sort of the fundamental example from uh, the literature um, is flight attendants. So a huge part of the job of a flight attendant is to manage, in part, the anxiety levels, but also the comfort levels of the people who are in the plane with them. Um, And that is incredibly hard work. It's incredibly sophisticated work. You have to do so much interpretation of body language and vocal tone and situational, you have to have incredible situational awareness. Um, And you also have to manage your own emotions and basically suppress your own emotions um, in favor of expressing outwardly emotions that you think will soothe the emotions of the person that you're with. Um, So it's really complicated and obviously really gendered labor that is often not before this concept even considered to be work. Uh, so you you mentioned that in your piece and yeah you go through some different examples of, of data performing emotional labor throughout the show. Uh, so could you sh- share some of those some of your favorite examples perhaps? 
Um, so I think the one I talk about most in the piece is his, his relationship with his daughter. Um, so in an episode called The Offspring, Data creates a daughter. Her name is Lal. She gets to pick her own gender, which I think is spectacular. Um, and she goes through all of these scenarios with her, teaching her about um, recognizing the emotions of the people of the crew and learning how to interact with them. Um, and the work that he does teaching her how to perform emotional labor is kind of like itself a kind of emotional labor, um, which has a recursivity <laughs> that I really like. Um, another good example, I think, is the episode in which Data goes on a date, <laughs> uh, in which Data dates, I believe her name is Jenna, um, which is, I get the sense, kind of a an episode that's like looked down on a little bit, but which I thought was really beautiful. <laughs> um, because he was working so hard to understand what she was feeling. And maybe that comes from dating a string of bad guys who didn't care at all to understand what I was feeling. But to see someone like recognize, oh, like this is a skill. Like learning how to be in a relationship is a skill and it's one that I can work at and try to get better at and I can listen to my partner. There's a wonderful scene where she gives Data this sculpture as a gift and he thinks, oh, I know, I will put it in a place in my uh, quarters where the light reflects beautifully off of it and accentuates, it, accentuates how beautiful the statue is. And then she looks a little disappointed and he sees that in her face and he recognizes that she's disappointed and says, oh, but there are other meanings to human gifts. And maybe it would be more meaningful if I put the gift in a place of prominence in the apartment so that other people will know that the person who gave this to me is important. And I was like, this is such a wonderful literal, literal like discussion of what your emotions and your thought processes should be when you care about another person. And I like how explicit data makes all of those kind of like negotiations that sometimes uh, sometimes when I know I have been kind of socialized to do that kind of care work for other people, that I do it unconsciously. And I like that Data does it consciously because <laughs> it makes it visible. Mm -hmm. That was really obvious in the one episode where uh, he's father of the bride to Keiko. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And she wants to call off the wedding and she asks him like the worst person ever <laughs> to deliver the message to O'Brien that she doesn't want to oh, get married. Right. Oh, God. <laughs> and he has to like constantly adjust how like he he thought that, well, it's going to make her happy to not be married to him. And if he is invested in her happiness, he will also be happy <laughs> that she wants to not get married to him. <laughs> And so he has like a specific kind of programming of how people will respond. And then he has to reprogram after that's not <laughs> the predicted response that he had. And a lot of that episode is him managing other people's emotions and figuring out how to keep people comfortable and how to keep people happy. The way that he tries to learn to be human is not a selfish thing. It's not a selfish desire in a lot of the ways that it's demonstrated that he really is trying to care for the people around him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I loved when you made that point in the essay. Cause it definitely like it's at some, as someone who grew up with Star Trek, it like brought something together for me that I had not ever thought about in quite that way. Uh, I feel like one of the great things about the universe that's built by Star Trek is that on the one hand, it's this very like, rational, individualist, like, the individual matters. There's a reason why the Borg are big bads. Uh, and other, like, baddies often have some kind of, like, lack of individuality. But there's also this really strong thread through all of Star Trek about, like, the importance of taking care of the whole. And um, and I really loved your, your point at the end of your essay about, like, human like, the... If, if Data and other characters like Data are there to explore the nature of humanity, what does it mean that so much of that exploration is about 
what is the best way to like relate to people with like goodness and kindness so that like we can exist in society together. Yes, my heart is like swelling up as you're talking <laughs> because I am in such agreement. Um, and another another aspect of that that is related to this um, uh, anti, not quite a, a, a conception of humanity and self that is not all about like one individual's consciousness and like directedness, which is that they occasionally play it for jokes that data doesn't understand that when people say things, sometimes they don't mean what they say. And sometimes that's a joke, but oftentimes like he never takes it as a joke. He takes it as, oh, this is another interesting aspect of humans. Sometimes they say things, but they mean different things. And I can use other clues like the context of our relationship or their body language or their tone of voice to interpret what they mean in this really full really human way that often uh, I think people have a tendency to denigrate as a mode of communication, all of the other kinds of interpretive work that we do. And I just love that about him. So I really love when at the beginning of when we started talking that you said that um, someone had said to you that all of this is how data learns how to be a man. And you said, no, this is how he learns how to be a woman. And I like, I like that turnaround a lot. And I wonder if, like, I guess in the context of representing this kind of emotional labor um, on television, if it's, do you think it's important that Data is male, I guess, and not a female character? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I think impurely as a as an audience member, as somebody who's watching it, I think it's super important that someone who like looks like and presents like a man um, is doing that work. Um, just because I think that <laughs> the more men looking people we can have doing it, the better. Um, and I think there's also like, there's a nice turnaround about that, that uh, like data is the robot. <laughs> Like not, he's not a robot, but like he's the robot. And to see that like hyper masculine sort of um, symbol doing this kind of work, um, like the way he is with his cat, which I didn't even talk about the cat in the essay, but it's incredible. <laughs> um, I think that's really powerful to see like a man do that. Um, and in terms of the world of the show in particular, I think it's important because the other primary examples of emotional labor on Next Generation are um, sometimes Dr. Crusher in her capacity as a doctor, um, but also Deanna Troy, whose literal job is literally emotions. <laughs> um, and they pull her in. And her magic and power. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I feel something. Uh, <laughs> which is both ludicrous and also like... I was like, I love her. <laughs> I have so many emotions. Um, but in that context, I think it's like even more important to have a man also <laughs> engaging in, in the same practice. Um, so it's not just the ladies. There was a comparison that you made between data and women in the last paragraph when you say data, like all human women, has struggled to prove himself a sentient being in the eyes of the law, but this is only a necessary, not sufficient condition for humanity. And that just, to me, encompassed, like it reminded me of the episode in season two when he's actually on trial to prove <clears throat> his sentience and his humanity um, and himself as an actual legitimate life form. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, but it really reminded me of a lot of this stuff that's going on now with like Me Too and Time's Up and the stuff that happened with the, the gymnastics, the U.S. gymnastics coach and how like a lot of this is um, a lot of the behaviors that have come out with the Me Too stuff might not be, you know, don't really touch the legal system in a significant way. But a lot of this is about women. Um, advocating for their humanity, um, not just in instances where it's a violation of the law, but where it's a violation of what we feel is our humanity and that we have to somehow argue that. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for 
for saying that and for bringing that up because I think as I was writing the article, I went back and I rewatched the Measure of a Man episode and I found it, um, I found it both more and less emotionally affecting than I had the first time I watched it. So the first time I watched it, I thought it was so, I thought it was powerful to see like all of these friends rallying around data to prove that he was a person and then rewatching it again it seemed so insufficient like that moment where Riker thinks oh no I have almost proved that data is not a human because I took his arm off of his body like seemed so weak sauce <laughs> as an argument and the way that he says it like <laughs> Pinocchio's strings have been cut oh, no. or something like that like <laughs> It was so bogus after you had like six more seasons of exploring and understanding Data and his internal self and his external self and the relationships that they had with him. It was striking to go back to it and see like how how even the scene that the first time through seemed powerful was ultimately like really reductive and really just about Data's body in this way that was so dehumanizing um, and that I really related to watching it. Like, oh, well, your body means you're not a person. And as a woman, I really felt that strongly, not because I felt like, oh yeah, Data's body makes him not a person, but rather like, look at all of these people, all of these mostly men who think that this is such a powerful argument, who think that the nature of his body is so important and everything else is just Mm going to fall apart in the face of that, like, irrefutable proof. Um, It really, it was kind of like, it shook me up uh, watching it. And there's the part where Guinan, he's at Picard's having the conversation with Guinan, and she, I think it's significant that they have her deliver the line about if we decide that data is not sentient and he's not, you know, he doesn't have autonomy, then now you have a whole generation of disposable people. And um, that really revolved around that body argument. And I think it's really significant that they had Guinan, the one black woman character on that show, delivering that line. I thought that that was more powerful, I think, when I watched it as an adult than certainly when I watched it as a kid. Yeah. And uh, loath as I am to give a white man credit for anything, um, I thought that Picard's <laughs> reaction in that moment. We're allowed to give his... Picard is like the one white man who, who is, I think, acceptable. Yeah, yeah. And Patrick fair, fair, Stewart, fair. for that matter. Go on. Sorry. No, no, no. You're fair. It's right. Um, I think that it was powerful that the emotion that read on his face in that moment was like embarrassment. Like, I can't believe I didn't think of it this way before. This was really terrible of me. And I thought that was a powerful moment, too. Yeah. Star Trek delivers the feels. (laughs) (laughs) It is interesting. One of the things we were talking about earlier is is that because because Star Trek is so often so, like, good and revolutionary, like, that sometimes when it disappoints us or when it steps in it, it, like, feels even worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a personal betrayal somehow. Exactly. Totally. <laughs> so I, I, I basically, yeah, I understand that kind of feeling of everything about this, so much about this is amazing, but there is, like, some fundamental things wrong here that, feel shallower than they could be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> because unfortunately science fiction is a reflection of the people writing it and the culture they live in. And that means that y- the utopian societies we imagine are limited in that sense too. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Which, you know, Deanna and I spent a lot of time talking about in the last <laughs> year <laughs> for other stuff. Sorry. I was, start, I was almost going off on a tangent. Are there other instances in the series besides data, maybe, where you see um, where emotional labor maybe falls disproportionately on certain characters rather than others? Obviously not Deanna, but 
Do you see that in other characters as well? Hmm. Well, I think Guinan does a lot of that work. Um, and I think that there are some unfortunate gender and racial implications of the fact that they have her in that role. But also she is so spectacular in that role that um, just her performance is incredible. Um, and she often, like, as the sort of, like, barkeep kind of figure, is often the one listening and and reflecting back to people things that they may not realize um, in what they're saying or um, sort of giving them that push, like she gives Picard that push um, when they need it. Um, so probably, I mean, as much as or even maybe more than Deanna Troy, I think Guinan fulfills that role. I was thinking also um, about Kess and the Doctor in Voyager and how the relationship I think that you described with Data and other people and Data doing all of this work to like understand himself and to forge and maintain these relationships is like that's really reversed in Voyager because Kess basically has to like she has to like browbeat slash handhold the doctor into like being a person and she has to do all of this work to like comfort him and like buck him up and like uh occasionally like snap at him to get him to stop being so like cold to his patients and things like that so that was another instance of that labor kind of going in the opposite direction I was, I was also, so I was thinking about um, data and learning emotional labor in conjunction with sort of the thing that people sometimes say, which is that every Star Trek has a Spock. Every, every Star Trek has a character that is there to kind of examine and criticize and interpret humanity like from, from a step removed. And that character is often, now that I think about it in this framework, learning or analyzing or trying to understand emotional labor. Uh, so, you know, a lot of Spock's character, similar to, you know, Data has to um, understand and value emotional labor. He doesn't want to value emotional labor, but he's surrounded by some very emotional people and has to deal with it. In, and then the other thing I was thinking about, kind of going back to the sort of balance between individualism and appreciating the whole of um, of Star Trek, uh, the DS9 character that I feel like is often held up as the, the Spock character is Odo. But one of the interesting things there is that, you know, he he comes from this species where, like, they are all, they spend most of their time as, like, collective goop and, and, so, and only, like, take on individual form when they have to deal with other, like, individually formed people. And they think that this whole being, most of them think that this whole being individual, like, form is terrible and inefficient and pointless why would you want to do that when you can just like know and feel everything someone does just by like becoming goop with them? But but there but there is then an exploration of the value in like having to work to know other people versus just like being able to do it unconsciously. Yeah, Rebecca, that really reminds me of um, the data's data's day episode where he is like shepherding in a Vulcan woman, I think. Um, and he's expressing all of this frustration with her uh, because I think he, I think what he says is that um, on one level, he relates to the Vulcans and understands the Vulcans. But on the other hand, he finds it frustrating that they don't try <laughs> and they don't like make any effort or see any value in anyone's emotions. Um, and so I like, I related to him in that moment. <laughs> I think one of the things across all of the characters that are supposed to be that, you know, questioning of humanity character that you're talking about, Rebecca, is that one of the main points that they're that that positioning that character in each one of the series does is showing that being a person <laughs> requires a conscious effort. Um, and that's how you form relationships that are meaningful. 
um, and how you become a fully realized person is that it is, it is a conscious effort. It's not something that you just know how to do. I think that's why, obviously, there's plenty of discourse about emotion in Star Trek because that's like the main dynamic from the original series revolves around emotional Kirk and not emotional Spock. But I think what I really like about your piece, Deanna, is by framing it as emotional labor, you get what Layla's saying about how it's a conscious effort and that then the um, the condition of personhood is one that you produce yourself and it's not inherent in your body or your goo or anything like that. It's something that you do, not something that you like are, you know, you, you enact personhood. And like, I think that's, that's like a really liberating way maybe to think about like work and personhood. I like that a lot. I, I think that's what was really like flowing under the surface of your piece for me that I really enjoyed. So at the end of every podcast, hosts and sometimes guests like today will unburden themselves about one thing in the news or maybe our work or the world in general that is just really annoying us. And so this is one annoying thing and our guest is going to introduce our annoying thing today. So take it away, Deanna. (laughs) So as Rebecca reminded us before we started recording, there's this thing called raw water (laughs) that apparently tech bros are super psyched about um it means just drinking water out of streams and other uh notoriously potentially contaminated uh bodies of water (laughs) that can cause you to be come very 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 ill If you drink them, I think the uh, ostensible idea behind raw water is that when your water is full of living bacteria, that is somehow better for your body than drinking, quote unquote, sterilized uh, water from the tap. Uh, I think also maybe there's something about fluoride being bad in there. Um, Anyway, this is ridiculous. It's super annoying. (laughs) What do you guys think? (laughs) I, I can't I can't stand it. I can't stand that people are paying more money for water that has possibly animal poop in it. I can't deal with that. Like it definitely has animal poop in it. Like I don't know. Yeah, and maybe human poop in it too. Probably. <laughs> the thing that I love about raw water is though that it's like I love that it is, it's like a gateway into the like conspiracy theory psyche of all these tech bros because like that fluoride thing, man, if you tug on that thread, it leads straight to the flat earth. Like, yeah, (laughs) like the fluoride thing, it turns into like chemtrails. Like you can go down a whole rabbit hole of what these like tech bros believe is going on in the world and how they're going to. They're going to disrupt it by drinking <laughs> cholera water. I I love it because I think this is their just desserts. And I'm if you're just going to drink poofy water, I'm. can I buy tickets to come watch you do it? Like, let's, let's go. Yeah, what is their weird, like, masochistic impulse to keep doing things that, like, make them vomit violently? Like, there was the Soylent stuff that made yes. them vomit. There's... Apparent they're gonna all die from you know that awful bacteria you get from drinking stream water, and um, they're doing that weird fasting stuff. They have some sort of weird masochistic complex over there. Well, the wasn't one of the things that happened with Soylent, um, literally like anal seepage, which you should read the wikipedia article for what happens to you when you have cholera and maybe you just didn't get enough of that from your (laughs) toilet so you decided to start drinking some water out of a pond because that's what will happen to you (laughs) you guys i don't don't understand masculinity (laughs) just don't get it i think this kind of thing i was just gonna say that this thing had like has definitely been brewing for a long time like how long have we been talking in like rapturous tones about your microbiome and like jamie lee curtis is like selling you yogurt and stuff like 
put more microscopic creatures inside your pod. It'll make it better. <laughs> like this is this is the apotheosis of that. Like just scoop them right out of their habitat and drink them. <laughs> well, it's like the apotheosis of only of like not trusting science when science also helps poor people. Like if the science yes. is sanitation yeah. and clean water for everyone, then it is then you got to be skeptical but if science is like software developers like software development that only creates artificial intelligence that makes you rich then it's okay (laughs) and i was i was literally just gonna say here we are being the ones who are like just accept progress (laughs) (laughs) i know which is crazy my literal tweet about raw water was far be it for me to defend science but <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, but I think that like you're onto something, Deanna. Not, not just with the like, we don't care about poor people. But we also don't care about anything that might be a collective good in some way. Like yes. it really, I feel like reveals that tech bros are less interested in tech and more interested in libertarian philosophy, right. uh, and that if a tech if tech or lack of tech gets them closer to like their libertarian hellscape, they all want to live in um, the better it is. This brings it right back around to data and valuing like the experience of the singular man over like the experience of the collective and caring for other people. All right. Well, uh, Deanna, thanks for joining us. Not just for your, uh, what, talking about your wonderful piece on data and Star Trek, but also for ranting with us about raw water. Um, for everybody else listening, if you liked our episode today, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that listeners can find us. And remember, if you do it before our March episode, you will be entered into a drawing to win a free tote bag. If you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at, at, Lady, at Lady X Science or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for a monthly newsletter, read issues, and more, visit ladyscience.com. We are an independent magazine, and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at at LadyXScience. Yay!